there's this old Buddhist writing or story uh, about a few blind element, uh, a few blind men who came to find an elephant. It was the first time they saw an elephant, so since they didn't know anything about it, they started touching it to figure out what was this being that was before them. Uh, one of them touched the tusk, that's the tusk, right? And they said, this is a snake. The other one touched uh, on the foot and it said, this is a spear. The other one touched just the side of it and said, this is a tree trunk. And I know that this text that we have read speaks a little bit about this experience that not some blind man, but Jesus' first disciples had when they first encountered him. It wasn't that anything that they saw or declared about him was wrong, but each of them got only part of the picture. So today, as we move on on this passage, we will see that Jesus is the last one who announced who he actually is. And the goal of this passage today and what the text is inviting us to do is to come and see Jesus for ourselves. As John makes it clear throughout his gospel, and which he declares at the end most explicitly, his goal is writing this gospel as it's stated on the end of the book, chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And this apologetic and evangelistic purpose is clearly seen since the beginning of the book. I mean, if we go back a few verses and you look at from verses 1 to 5, verse 1 says that this Jesus is God himself. Verse 2 through, th through him, all things were made. Verses 4 and 5, he is the light that came into the world to light all men. And no darkness can overcome him. I mean, just with five verses comes packed all these things about Jesus and his nature and his identity. But it may be the case for you as probably was for those living around with Jesus and reading it probably later for the first time, that these might be just senseless terms that don't really make sense. You can't really put a concrete idea into all these things that John is talking about, let alone relate, have a relationship with this person. In other words, the sensible question that you should be asking when reading this is, how do these marvelous descriptions about Jesus relate to me and my purpose in life? These news might be true, but why are they good? So at this point of the account, John is describing the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the first witnesses of him. He has already gone over John the Baptist, which was his first witness from verses 19 to 34, and now he's moving on to the actual first disciples of Jesus. And as the text progresses, and I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open, we'll see two big movements in this portion of the story that kind of mirror each other out. So in the first part, verses 35 to 42, 
we'll see that Andrew is the first one that follows Jesus and then brings Simon alongside him so he too can come and see Jesus. And then next, kind of a mirrored part of that, from verses 43 to 51, we'll see then Philip following Jesus and then him too bringing in someone else, bringing in Nathaniel so he can come and see Jesus for himself. Similar stories, but with little important differences and developments from one to the other. The story kind of builds upon itself with different witnesses and unique reactions to Jesus. And finally, Jesus himself steps into the room and gives the final word about who he is and who he wants us to perceive him to be and how he wants us to relate to him. And it's definitely not we and certainly not what the people then expected him to be. So as we'll go on, we'll see how each witness of the story uniquely contributes to our understanding of who Jesus is. And it will inform us of why he was received the way he did, as we know, with such hostility and division. And finally, we'll conclude with Jesus' witness about himself, which is just the climax of this whole story. And the goal of this portion of John's gospel and what is, he's actively inviting us to each do is to come and see Jesus for ourselves. And by doing so, we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life through him. So in order for us to see that from the text itself, turn your eyes with me again, please, to verse 35. And it reads there, the next day again, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. We know from earlier verses that John the Baptist's ministry was not supposed to be an end on himself. It was supposed to look beyond Verse 7 says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him in Jesus. So it was only natural that now in verse 35, the next day, as he's walking with two of his disciples, he testified again, behold the Lamb of God. He's pointing to Jesus, which is the continuation and the consummation of his ministry. And this expression, the Lamb of God, is the first of many rich and deep theological, just weighty terms that will come in this passage. And each of them, as we'll see, they refer to a different aspect of God's promises to his people in the Old Testament, to Israel. The Lamb of God specifically referred back not only to the Passover Lamb, which the Israelites ate once a year to remember God's delivering from their slavery in Egypt. But he also spoke about a certain servant of the Lord, which the prophet Isaiah had announced, who would come and deliver people from their sins. So John is saying, that is him, the one we've been waiting for. And verse 37 says the, the obvious reaction, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. The two disciples immediately abandoned John the Baptist and followed Jesus, the Lamb of God. 
This is what the baptizer's ministry was leading to. It's where it was supposed to go. His disciples were supposed to look beyond him and into the true one, who is Jesus. But then, verse 38, when Jesus saw that there were two new men following him, he turned and asked them, what are you seeking? It's relevant to see that verse 35, John the Baptist had already said, behold. And now Jesus asks, what do you seek? What are you beholding? What are you coming to see? What is it that you truly want from me? I know John the Baptist said, I'm the guy, I'm the Lamb of God. But what is it that you want from the Lamb of God? What's your expectation from me? And we should each individually ask ourselves this. What is it that I want with all this church business, with all this Jesus business? Is it just a tradition that I'm following with my family? I tag along with them. I was brought up this way. Is it just a topic that I like to talk about with my friends? Is it just helpful relationships that I have in this community? Or is it a person that I come to relate to, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God? Similarly, when I first saw Carol, my wife, my heart said, Behold, what a pretty lady. And I was immediately focused on her, and I started following her, not in a creepy way. But seeking her attention, and that just grabbed me. And that interest, over time, had to be translated into action. And when I asked her that if I could date her, I stated my purpose very clearly from the beginning as a 16-year-old. I want to marry this girl. There is no point in just beholding Jesus indifferently. And Jesus asked these two men point blank, what are you seeking from me? And they answered him with another question. Rabbi, where are you staying? They call him rabbi, which means teacher. So they already identified that they have left their previous rabbi. They got a new rabbi. They're seeking to learn from the one John the Baptist was talking about. So Jesus replied, come and see. They spent the day seeing and they were convinced. This is where they were supposed to be or whom they were supposed to be with. Which leads us to the second witness. So now on verses 40 to 42, let's read again Andrew's witness after experiencing Jesus to Simon, his brother. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Verse, verse 41 says that Andrew, one of the two disciples, first went out, found his brother Simon, and told him the good news. He could have stayed longer with the master. He could have enjoyed more of his presence, of that sweet communion that we can only imagine how it was. But his heart was overflowing. It just had to spill out 
in joyful retelling of what he has seen. And he reminds me of this short Old Testament story, if you remember, in 2 Kings 7, the Syrian army was invading Samaria. And they did it in such a way, the army around them, that they had no supplies, so there was hunger in the land, absolute hunger. And there were around four lepers outside the city of Samaria, just desperate. I mean, we can't come in, we don't have any food, and we're going to die either way. So they thought, why not? Let's just go to the camp of the Syrians. Maybe they will have mercy on us. But in the meantime, God was working out his own dealings with the Syrians. And miraculously, God somehow chased them away supernaturally. The Syrians who were safe in their camp just ran away in fear and left everything behind. So when the lepers got there, there was abundance of food and everything else. So they were super joyful with all of that and started tasting the food and everything that they needed. But eventually, they realized something to themselves. And they said, this is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. They couldn't do that. So they ran back to the city and told everyone, there's salvation for us. Come and taste. So they, like Andrew here, shared the good news. Not only so that the Israelites, and this is important, not only so that the Israelites would know the information, hey, there's food somewhere, but so that they would come and taste it. Or in our case here, come and see Jesus for yourself. Andrew has the same spirit as those lepers, and he goes back to the hometown he's from to share where he found out. He possibly told more people, the text doesn't say, but he first went to his brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah. Which I think is really interesting that he phrased it like that. We have found the Messiah. Which assumes what? That they were looking for him. They were expecting. They were not idle. Hey, there's this promise of a Messiah. And yeah, I mean, good to know. They were looking for him. We have found the Messiah. But if you're paying attention now, there's a little bit of a difference from what John the Baptist said to Andrew, to what Andrew now is speaking to Peter. The baptizer said, behold the Lamb of God. Now Andrew's saying, we have found the Messiah, we have found the Christ. Why does he do that? It's not our goal here to spend too much time focusing on this. We can talk more individually if you want after the service. But Messiah literally means the anointed one. Andrew was saying the anointed one had come. And many people in the Old Testament were anointed. I mean, Aaron and his brothers were anointed for priesthood. Many of the prophets were anointed for their office. But most specifically, most important here, kings were anointed to the throne. And this was a big deal for Old Testament saints because specifically in 2 Samuel 7, God had made a really important promise to King David saying that a king from his line would always sit on the throne. And every time someone after that prom promised or prophesied about a coming anointed one, they were, in other words, speaking of this coming ultimate reign for the people of Israel, that they were so desperate to have because they were in exile, dominated by many other countries, currently Rome. 
after all the political struggles, exiles, and imperial colonizations that Israel had suffered, people were expecting that a special anointed king from the line of David would reclaim the throne of Israel and redeem them from Rome. So when they speak now of this coming king, which Andrew said has arrived, they have something really different in mind from a lamb of God, right? One reclaims the throne with might, and the other gives his life up in sacrifice. John said, look at the lamb, and Andrew's saying, we have found the lion. It's two different things. And here comes the point I was making earlier about the elephant and the blind man. Most people knew God's promises from the Old Testament, and they were a glorious promise that they rejoiced in. But it was hard for them to understand how all of that could fit in in one person. And this ambiguity is probably something we have all experienced reading our Bibles. And this is highlighted again with the next witness. So let's keep reading. For in verse 42, Jesus sees Simon and before they're introduced, Jesus knows what's going to be of this Simon. And he changes his name. Simon is now Cephas, which means the rock in Greek, not Dwayne Johnson. Different. Jesus knows who this person is, so much so that he already tells what will be of Peter. He will be the rock, the representative of the apostles on whom the church will be built. It's all laid out before Jesus, this mysterious Lamb of God, Son of God, Messiah. And at this point, we end the first half of the story, and we'll see a similar pattern now moving forward with Philip and Nathaniel, Nathaniel kind of as a mirror to the, the first part. So, verse 43, you can see that John intentionally, just by the first word there, he intentionally wants to group these accounts in, in, um, in a progression, because he starts, just like he started verse 35, the next day. He wants to put this all in cohesion so we can see there's a progression from one to the other. So the next day, Jesus went to Galilee where Philip was from. And this time, instead of someone following Jesus, Jesus takes the initiative and tells Philip, come and follow me. And Philip, just like Andrew had done before, goes on and finds someone else from his town and shares the stunning good news. Verse 45, he says to Nathanael again, like Andrew had said to Peter, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Again, they were looking for him, right? And once again, you can see that there's something different again about this witness. It's not the lamb, it's not the Messiah, it's the one Moses wrote about. And this could mean a number of things, but I think most clearly from context, this is talking about a promise that Moses made to the people in Deuteronomy 18, that after him would come a prophet like him. And in very clear terms, you will listen to him. And they expected this prophet for a long time. And I think this is what he's referring to because back in verse 21, when the Jews were inquiring of John the Baptist. They asked, are you the prophet to come? And he said, no, I'm not, which is setting the stage to the one who actually is, Jesus Christ, coming after him. 
And now Philip is probably claiming this is the one. But in a really anticlimactic way, Philip witnesses to Nathaniel saying, it is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And then Nathaniel mockingly says, Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth of all places? Many argue here that this is just Nathaniel having beef with this local rivalry with Nazareth because he was from a close-by town or just because Nazareth was small. But this goes much beyond just small rivalries or a matter of size. It's just because Galilee in general, that, re that region, was never seen as a spiritual hub like Judea where all the big figures and the OGs from the Old Testament came from. So it's more as if I would say right now, Brazil, what can come out of Brazil? He's having this self-shame about where he comes from. And in a few chapters, Jesus himself will witness that no prophet has honor in his house. Chapter 7, verse 41, they question him again, will the Christ come from Galilee? It was a real thing, a real questioning. But Phillips gives the same answer as we have seen before. Come and see. Nathaniel, you probably know a lot about Galilee and a lot about what was promised before about the one to come. And you think those, those two can't mix up. But just come and see for yourself. This becomes one of the trademarks of the call for discipleship in the Gospel of John. Chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus says, You do not come to me so that you may have life. 635, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 637, All that the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not drive away. Verse 65, No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. The call for discipleship is about coming and seeing Jesus for yourself. You can hear a lot of things about Jesus and even affirm true statements of him. But our relationship with Jesus is not about knowing the right things, but experiencing him for who he is. He does not seek truth knowers, but knee benders. He wants a relationship, not a philosophy. This makes me think of a line from this 1997 movie called Good Will Hunting. My favorite movie of all time. Don't say bad things about it. <laughs> now, this is a movie about a problematic yet genius kid who got assigned by his parole officer to some counseling sessions. And it's about his transformation through that. In the beginning, he doesn't want to open up at all. And he dismisses all the counselors by his witty little comments and things that make just the counselors not want to deal with him. And with this last counselor, on their first session, he actually saw a painting on the wall. The guy said, oh, I, I painted that painting. And he starts dissecting his life, just saying, some terrible things about the man's life because he saw these little lines that he drew and he knows of philosophers that said that when you draw it like this, your life is messed up. I don't know how. 
But this is what the counselor says to him, part of what he says to him on their next meeting. You're a genius, Will. His name is Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. Yet you presume to know so much about me because of a painting you saw. You must know everything about me. Then he asks, you're an orphan, right, Will? Will assents. Do you think I would presume to know everything about you because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you, who you are? And I don't personally care about all of that because, you know what? I can't learn anything from you and I can't read it on a book unless you want to talk to me about you. You. Then I'm fascinated. I'm all in. But you don't want to do that, right, Will? Eventually, he does want to do that, and that's the vehicle of his transformation through that relationship. What the counselor was trying to communicate and what the world so desperate, is so desperate to find is that some things in life simply cannot be just learned or imagined. They need to be experienced deeply, and this is the only way that they can really be life-changing. And this is especially true about our relationship with Jesus. In a few words, David summarizes this intimate relationship we can enjoy with the creator of the universe, saying, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And now we come to the last witness, which is Jesus himself. You see that the story intentionally has been building up to where Jesus has the last word right before he starts his first signs on his public ministry. So this is a key moment where he tells of himself before he shows of himself. Just like it happened with Simon, Jesus already knows all about this new person, Nathaniel. When he sees Nathaniel, Jesus claims, Behold, an Israelite indeed, or a true Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. What Jesus most likely means here is that even though Nathanael was doubting at first, asking about Nazareth, he is someone that when he truly sees the evidence, he'll believe. He's not out to deceive or just be obstructing the truth, but when he sees it, he'll believe it. And there's an interesting parallel between the patriarch Jacob whose name means deceit, and Israel, which is the new name that he received after a life-changing encounter with God. So Jesus' words here, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, mean really, here's an Israelite in whom there is no stain of Jacob. Even though the name Israel also resembles someone who resists God, Jesus is saying, here's what Israel was supposed to be. Someone who does not resist God, but who follows God and does not have that stain of deceitful mind like Jacob had. He'll see God's anointed king and bow down before him, unlike the rebellious generation of the past. And after Jesus says that he saw Nathanael under the fig tree, whatever that means, bowing down in adoration is exactly what he does as the true one for the, from the people of God. He says, Rabbi, 
You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And again, there's a lot of theology involved in just this little statement that would need more clarification later. But for now, you can at least see easily that this is similar to what was said before about Jesus being the king from the line of David. He's got on his mind political things, even though he sees a divine nature imprinted in Jesus' face. And despite all these theological caveats that could take us off track, Jesus takes us right back to the point. And he asks the most pressing issue. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe me? You will see greater things than that. Now, pay attention. In verse 50, He's speaking just to Nathaniel. This you here is singular. You will see greater things than that. But on verse 51, he switches to the plural form in the original language. And he says to all that are present. Could have been just Nathaniel and Philip. Could have had also Andrew and Simon. Other folks. I don't know. But he says to the crowd. I say to you, y'all will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Interestingly enough, the only account anywhere in the Bible of someone having a similar experience to this is Stephen later on in Acts. He's about to be martyred, and he says, I saw heaven open and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. No one else. And Stephen wasn't even there at that scene. How then... Could Jesus have said to all of those present there that they would experience this vision? And what does that mean to us today? I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus is the first and only one to use this expression, the Son of Man. And it's very key here to understand why he's using this. It's used at least 12 times in, the, in this gospel and several other in the other gospels in the old testament the expression son of man could refer simply to a male son of man but most significantly in daniel 7 a very unique son of man is described and this is the only text i'll ask you to turn there just so we can quickly understand the importance of using this phrase so daniel chapter 7 We'll look just at a couple verses there so we can see the importance of this use here. Daniel chapter 7. It's Daniel's vision that we're going to read starting in verse 13. So in his God-given vision, Daniel sees that, verse 13, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is God himself. And verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So that's Daniel's vision. But then comes the interpretation of the vision from verses 16 on. It says, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So what each thing that he was seeing meant. Now look at verse 18. 
which specifically interprets the part about the Son of Man. It reads, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom. And again, verse 27, it says, the people of the saints of the Most High, Israel, will receive the kingdom forever. Where's the Son of Man in this interpretation? It's a little bit unclear, right? It's puzzling because from this text, we can't actually tell if the Son of Man is just a way of saying the people of God in general, or if the Son of Man is a special someone that will come in the future and individually grab a hold of this kingdom and redeem Israel. The point, and this is important, is that this is an ambiguous character that people were were grappling over figuring out who is this. It left the Jews puzzled and the Son of Man only appears in this way once in the Old Testament, which is the text that we read. So now with the time we have left, let's go back to our text in John 1 where we'll see how these pieces connect together. So Jesus uses this very ambiguous term to call on himself. He doesn't use a very clear one like Lamb of God, Messiah, Son of God. He uses the most ambiguous term he could find. And then he says, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on this ambiguous Son of Man, which is himself. For those who are not familiar, this phrase, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on something, is a clue for the people there that they instantly remembered. This old story, back from Genesis 28, which you don't need to open. Jacob was on his wanderings in Canaan and he fell asleep. And then he had a dream. And in this dream he had a vision. And look how similar the vision is. The, the text said... He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And, look at this, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, the stairway. There above it stood Lord, the Lord, the Lord God himself. So if you're paying attention here, you see that when Jesus retells this vision... He intentionally replaces the stairway for himself, his favorite expression of himself. He says, you see heaven open and the angels of God coming up and down, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So actually, what Jesus is saying is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to God, to the Father, except through me. As the stairway between heaven and earth, no one can come to the Father unless it is through Jesus. This is what Jesus is promising they will see as his disciples and what we can see as well. Through him, they'll see the Father himself. Interestingly enough, in John 14, Philip, of whom we're reading just now, he says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The latter means the connection between heaven and earth, between man and God. Jesus is saying to all his disciples, past and present, that if they follow him, the Son of Man, they shall see God. And that is the vision that not only those present there will have when they follow him, but it's true of all disciples everywhere. When we look to Jesus with faith, the Holy Spirit regenerates us in such a way that we come to find God and to have a relationship with him that is only possible through Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. This is true of us, friends. If you are longing to know God and have been for all your life, the search is over. If you find Jesus, you have found God. Your response to Jesus is your response to God. There is no other way. That is why Jesus is so controversial on his time and even so today. And this goes hand in hand with why Jesus chose to use such an ambiguous term, the Son of Man, to refer to himself. You probably have asked yourself so far, why does, did he choose that very term, which was so ambiguous? Why not a more direct one? But he uses an ambiguous term instead because first he knows the heart of man. He knows that it is deceitful. Also, like we saw earlier, the second reason is that the people believe that Messiah would be a political liberator. He did not want to attach himself to that. That's not what he was about. But he knew people would attach it to that. It's so much so that after he fed the crowd in chapter 6, the text says in verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. He did not want that. So he did not want to call himself something that was so weighty on the, people, on the people's mind. And lastly, people would discredit him quickly if he said, I'm Messiah, and then did not go to immediately feel their expectations of a political liberator. Look at verse, uh, uh, if you look later at chapter 12, verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lift, lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Is the question they ask. They don't know. They don't know who the Son of Man is, which is great for Jesus' ministry. So from now on, Jesus will use this term Son of Man because it was ambiguous enough that he could fill it in with meaning of his own in order to know who he truly is and what it means to be the Son of God and what it means to be Messiah and what it means to be the prophet. The disciples then and now need to come and see him for who he is. They can't just have an idea, idea from afar. That's why the following texts, starting in chapter 2, are all going to be about his signs. Because he's going to show and put flesh and bones to this idea of the Son of Man. And the culmination of Jesus' works and what he did on earth goes against what everyone was expecting. Dying on the cross where all the gospel accounts find their climaxes. No one expected that the way to fulfill God's promises to Israel would be by dying such a shameful death 
on the cross. But that's exactly what he did. And he rose in victory over death and sin, acquiring for us the same victory over our sin and our hopeless state. So to conclude for us, all that the other people witnessed about Jesus were true statements. He is all that that they said. But they each meant a different thing in their own minds. And only after they saw the finished work of Christ at his death and resurrection does John says this amazing truth. Chapter 21, verse 12. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. We have the vantage point of reading this gospel with the whole perspective. And John wrote it so that we would believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, much more than a political liberator, and that by believing in him, we might have eternal life. So let me leave y'all with a few application questions so you can think over and reflect during your week. Ask yourself, and I'm asking myself, have I truly seek to know Jesus intimately? Or am I satisfied with just affirming true things about him, like the Bible testifies that even demons do? How joyfully curious am I about knowing Christ more and more? And how eagerly am I expecting his return? Test yourselves. When was the last time that you thought about his return, his imminent return, and delighted in that? Have I fabricated a Jesus according to myself, according to the meaning that I put in to those things? Maybe a sign that we are doing this is if we talk to people about Jesus saying, hey, the Jesus I know of or the Jesus I'm comfortable with wouldn't do such a thing, wouldn't say such a thing, wouldn't be such a thing. Please know that the vision of God and having a relationship with him is only enabled by our faith in Jesus. The spirit enables our spiritual sight when we earnestly come to investigate and see Jesus for who he is as revealed in scriptures. So if you're a seeker of Jesus in this morning, still trying to discover more of him, you're in the right place. We all are. We'll share communion in a bit. And we have throughout the week this communion, this fellowship of believers where we can encourage one another and where you can see right next to you someone who has been walking with the Lord for much longer than you have. Walk with that person. If you're cold in your faith, maybe it's because you're just circling around Jesus with great thoughts and feelings about him, but with no real life-changing affections that incline you to depend on him and trust in him. There's a line in a song by Shailene that says about Jesus, you're not a philosophy, you're not a theory, you're not an apologetic debate topic merely. You're a person who deserves to be adored. Our going life should simply be to see you more, to have our souls satisfied and be so amazed. If we can enjoy Jesus' blessed presence, why would we trade that for just knowing facts about him? 
I hope it's obvious at this point, but the goal of this whole text and what the author is inviting us to do is to come and see Jesus for yourself. That's what true discipleship is. So now, I'll close as 